Fading Memories is sponsored by I'm Up. I'm Up is an app that gives you independence, security, and peace of mind. Find it in your favorite app store and use invite code 006 when you sign up. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. Respite care is something that is extremely important for caregivers to get, yet extremely difficult to manage. I'm excited to bring you my conversation today with Doris Green. Doris is all about respite care, how to get it, and how to make it a priority in your life. Turn up the volume a little bit so you don't miss anything. With me today is Doris Green. She is with the New York State Caregiving and Respite Coalition. So thank you for giving us some time today, Doris. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I saw online that you, one, are doing a respite care conference May 1st and 2nd this year, 2019. Yeah. And I wanted to have you talk the listeners through the importance of respite care and how they can go about getting it, considering sometimes people are under a little financial strain. But maybe first you could start out and tell me what the coalition does. Because I looked at the website, it looks like you guys do a lot of things. We do. So um, the New York State Caregiving and Respite Coalition comes on, under the Life Ca- sorry, Lifespan Respite Care Act. It's funded by uh, the federal government. And uh, our goal, at least in New York, because there are coalitions across the country, is really to develop a sustainable system of respite care that's accessible to caregivers. And we really work um, to address caregivers all across the age and disability spectrum. So a lot of people talk, you know, they think caregivers, they think Alzheimer's dementia. But when we think about caregivers, we think about people who have uh, been caring for uh, children and adults with developmental disabilities for a lifetime. We think about people who are given a devastating uh, diagnosis, physical like cancer or leukemia or something like that, where our caregivers are born in an instant. You know, of course, we're talking about our, our older caregivers who are caring for their, for their spouses. We're talking about daughters. We're talking about... Um, family members uh, who may be nieces, nephews, grandparents of um, people that they're, they're taking care of kids who are uh, unable to be cared for by their parents due to the opioid crisis. It's just huge. The caregivers are just everywhere. And um, so we really recognize that. And we're out there really talking about the need for caregivers to take care of themselves. Well, it's definitely important, and I know a lot of them don't, they don't see the need, and even when they do, they don't see how they can manage, because as you are aware, caregiving is all-encompassing, and sometimes it kind of swallows you up. Yes, it does, and and on top of that, many people don't identify as caregivers, they identify as family members, and, and they do what they're doing out of love, and they really don't recognize the fact that they are caregivers and that they might need some additional support for themselves. So, you know, we know that the health outcomes of caregivers improve if they, you know, access respite. We know that relationships improve if people get a break from the real stressful um, responsibilities of caregiving. The benefits are boundless. 
when people finally begin to have the opportunity to um, take care of themselves and think about that as a really important piece of their lives. Well, that leads me to two questions because the not identifying as a caregiver is something that I've been recently become aware of. So how do we get people to understand the importance of identifying that way? And then how you, you're in New York, I'm in California. How do people find other coalitions like yours for their particular state? Um, First of all, identifying as a caregiver, you know, it's kind of an internal thing. If you're, if you're doing things outside of your normal realm to care for other people, um, grocery shopping, medication management, driving people to doctor's appointments, you know, all the way to are you helping someone have a shower every day? And, you know, those are things that you would identify as caregiving roles. So if there's people out there, like think about home health care aides and all the things that they do. If you're doing that for a family member, then you're a caregiver. So really helping people to see that if they're going above and beyond, if it's taking up a lot of time out of their day to care for somebody else, then they are a caregiver. Even, okay. if they're, even if they're married to somebody, even if it's your, even if it's your kids, you, if you have someone with a special need and you are really putting in a lot of time and effort and you're tired because of it, you're a caregiver and you need a break. Well, that's an excellent way of putting it. So I appreciate that definition for lack of a better term. So how okay. can people in other states find coalitions like yours? So I, the first thing I would do is a lot of states have a no wrong door system. Here in New York, we call it New York Connects. It's a 1-800 number that people can call in, in various states um, and say, I, I'm a caregiver, I need a break. I'm a caregiver, how do I pay for respite? You know, do I need to get Medicaid? What are the things that I can get with Medicaid or where are the volunteer programs in my state? Another really good resource is the New York State Office for Aging um, and or any office for aging, sorry, so in any state any, that you're... Any state office any of aging. state office for aging. Also, any state, if you're... If you're caring for someone with um, a developmental disability, the state offices for disability, for developmental disability, or any of the particular organizations that support caregivers like Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis or any of those organizations. Um, I know if you go, if you search for coalition websites in your particular state, you'll probably come across them, but they are listed on the ARCH National Respite website, and that is archrespite.org and it connects you there's a whole page of all the coalitions in the entire state in the entire nation that you could connect with to find respite in your state well that's awesome i'm definitely going to put that link on my resources page and in the show notes because in my conversations with people online i'm not sure i wasn't aware of that and i know other people that they're kind of at their wits end. They've tied the knot. They're hanging on, but it's they're yep. losing their grip. And I've given out the information that I'm aware of, but I wasn't aware of that. So it's I'm not yep. sure it's as widely known as it needs to be. So hopefully we can fix that with this right. episode. Right. That's great. 
obviously getting respite is important. Uh, my mom lives in a memory care residence, so I don't have to worry about that personally. Thank goodness, because just visiting and dealing like this morning, my husband, instead of working is dealing with mom paperwork, which just the thought of it doing that stresses me out. So, so can I ask you a question? Certainly. You self-identify as a caregiver? Yes. I okay. didn't. Well, my father passed away just a little over two years ago. And right after, well, while he was on hospice, my sister and I obviously had a lot more immediate responsibility for the two of them and then mom. And it was, let's see, he passed away March 2017. And I went to my first Alzheimer caregiver support group in November of 2017. And that's when, I mean, I needed to go because it was just dealing with his death and dealing with her was overwhelming. And the grief support group was only a small piece of dealing with that. Yeah. Going to the caregiver support group, which is through the Alzheimer's Association, helped a lot. And I don't think that I identified as a caregiver, but I didn't not identify as a caregiver, if that makes any sense. I mean, I knew I was responsible for her and yeah. her dog at the time, so... And you were going to a support group, so you did recognize that you needed you needed some support for yourself. Yeah, so, and, and so the, she's the uh, facilitator is very good because it says Alzheimer caregiver support, and she's very good at pointing out that even if your loved one doesn't live with you, like in my case, that you're still a caregiver and you're still in the right place, that the support right. group is for the variety of people dealing with loved ones with dementias and Alzheimer's. And there, yeah. I have run across people who have a family member with dementia or Alzheimer's and a special needs sibling. Sure. Yeah. So those people need Very even powerful. more. Yep. Yep. But even, you know, you're talking about dreading the paperwork that you have to deal with for, and even though your mom is being cared for uh, on a day-to-day basis and her care needs are being met by staff, you're still providing an amazing amount of support when it comes to the paperwork, to the emotional support. So you still are a caregiver. And that's where I tell people, they'll say to me, ah, but she's in a nursing home or she's in a memory care. So I'm really not a caregiver. But the fact of the matter is, is that you, you really are. And I agree. Um, Cause there's times where I go regularly and the morning shift gal, who's wonderful She's in charge of getting mom showered and dressed and all of those daily activities. And she has no qualms about telling me mom needs more shampoo, more body wash. Recently, she said, you know, we, I'm in California, but we did have some very cold weather in February. And she said, you know, mom was starting to get resistant to showers again. And she thought it might be because the towels weren't really long, so they weren't wrapping around her all the way, even though my mom's skinny. And she says, your mama needs more towels, and they need to be bigger and fluffy. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I made sure that those new towels were present before her next shower day. So, you know, I mean, obviously going and picking up towels isn't the same as helping somebody in and out of bed and actually doing the showering, but it's still... You know, I was working and I realized, oh my gosh, her shower is tomorrow morning. It's five o'clock. I better hustle. Right. And right. so it, you know, it's not something you could just do as your schedule allows. And sometimes you just have to 
stop what you're doing and do what they need, even though, like you said, she's in a memory residence and it's a nice residence and the staff there is wonderful. So my sister and I are blessed with that. So I, I took care of my mom at, um, for several years at home and I had um, in-home care, home health care aides who would come in and uh, what people don't recognize is, you know, I, I tell social workers and case managers all the time, you know, if you think that you've done, you've done your job if you've gotten um, a caregiver in-home help like that, but what you have to recognize is that it's not a magic bullet and that there are sacrifices that are made when you even have people come into your home to help you. You're dealing, you're dealing with an invasion of privacy. Um, you're dealing with a lot of guilt that you, you know, caregivers will deal, caregivers have a lot of guilt that they're not doing enough or they're not doing it right or they should be doing more or, you know, whatever it is. But there, there's a sacrifice to having that kind of help in your house. But honestly, I, you know, got better at using the time when there were home health aides here to do things to take care of myself because so many caregivers we'll use the respite to get chores done or, you know, take care of other people in the family in that time. And the idea of really getting people to grasp the concept of respite is really self-care. It's not taking time to take care of other people too, who are also involved in your life. So, um, but my mom was with us, you know, for seven years and uh, she died three years ago this month. She's been on my mind a lot. But I also will tell you that I have a daughter with uh, significant mental health issues. I didn't identify as a caregiver of a child with serious behavioral issues, but there are so many parents out there who uh, not only are they caring for um, their older loved ones, perhaps, but they're dealing with some really significant rough behavior from kids with mental health issues. And... Um, Caregivers in that state, or in that situation, seem to think, well, I, I'm their parent. It's my responsibility. And they are the parents, and it is their responsibility. But they also are caregivers who need to take time to take care of themselves. And that's my message to people is really taking time to take care of yourself, no matter who it is you're caring for. Which is important. And I don't know if this statistic applies to just, must apply to all caregivers, but what I've read is 65% of caregivers will end up hospitalized or deceased before their loved one is. Yeah, That's they, a very bad number. It's a very bad number, and they don't, um, they don't, they don't see it in, when they're in the midst of it, you know, that they're neglecting their own health. So that's another thing that I always stress that uh, respite time is good for is to get to those doctor's appointments. That's a good point. I know people yeah. that... They realize it. They know they're they're frazzled. They're stressed. They're tired. But they they don't see a they don't see a way out. You know, I can't afford to have somebody come in. You know, because mom and dad didn't have money, and now they live with me, and I can't work as much, which is a common issue. Or like you said, that they they take the time to get other stuff done. I know from. Um, online. There's one gentleman taking care of his wife. I believe it's younger onset Alzheimer's. He's younger than my mom, so it must be. My mom's only 76. And he, he can't take her grocery shopping anymore. 
So he orders everything online and then they go pick it up so that they get out of the house. But sometimes he'll post online what he's doing while the caregiver is in the house. And I want to respond that he needs to go do other things, (laughs) but I don't want to be obnoxious. So, Well, he he might start to figure it out. You know, a lot of people, when they first bring uh, care, care, other people to provide care in the house, don't trust you know, and they're worried about, they're worried about a lot of things. They, they worry that they won't get the care. They worry that their loved one is going to be upset if they're gone. They worry that someone's going to steal their belongings. They, they worry a lot. I I do recall that. I remember the first night that we had the 24 seven caregivers for my parents. Now they, the, the ladies started a week before my dad was out of the hospital or let me think. He was, he came out of the hospital after a month. He was home for three days. He fell. He was in the hospital for six days and then he was on hospice. So that first evening driving out of the driveway, knowing I was leaving my mom who has no idea who anybody is, time of day, season, what's going on, what happened two minutes ago with people I didn't know. It was worse than the first time you leave the baby with the babysitter. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it was, I was like, I didn't know if I was going to sleep that night. And it was, it was very stressful. And then, you know, we added my dad in there and he did not understand what was going on. So he was extremely resistant to their help, which did not help him. It was, it was a mess. Yeah. Yeah. So what, obviously you, there's some agencies that will do, like a minimum of four hours of care. You don't have to hire somebody for every day, all day, like we did. What other options do people have to get respite that might be not obvious? Okay. So the first one that I like to talk about is what's obvious maybe to you and me is not obvious to the caregiver. And that's the people who are around them. Um, Neighbors, friends, uh, faith community members, uh, we we um, really talk about and push a program called Share the Care. If people wanted to look that up, it's really just a way of pulling together your natural supports and resources um, to be able to help provide care. And it's um, it's it's popular and it's very helpful and it's free. And it's really just having a few people who love and care about you, who all they really are waiting for is to be asked. You know, and people, a lot of people, like you just said it about the gentleman online, I don't want to be obnoxious. And so lots of people will feel like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to ingratiate myself on them or whatever, but they, um, there are people around you who may be willing to help in any way that you ask, you just have to ask. So that's one of the things. The other is we work a lot with faith communities across the state who have open drop-in respite centers for, um, you know, the earlier stage Alzheimer's patients. And they're four-hour programs hosted by a a faith community where once a month or twice a month that they can drop their loved one off and get four hours of respite um, while there's planned and supervised activities for their loved ones. Those are also very popular. All the Medicaid managed long-term care programs. So if somebody's on Medicaid, the options are more vast for for 
respite opportunities and for care, which would include day programming, people coming in the house, those kinds of things. And those are accessible through Medicaid. And that's when I would, you know, suggest that people contact their office for aging or their um, social services programs and find out if Medicaid is an appropriate uh, step for folks, because there's a lot there. Um, those are most of the options except for paid care is your volunteer respite programs and the programs that really pull in your own supports and, um, and people who care about you to help. Well, the one, the first part that you mentioned, you, we were talking about share the care. Mm -hmm. A lot of times there's people that are willing to do little things like maybe you've got a teenager next door that mows the household lawn could mow your lawn. That takes one more task off your plate and yep. it's not necessarily overburdening, you know, them. Somebody might be able to pick up your prescriptions when they're picking up theirs. So there's little things that people can do that lighten your load and every little bit of lightning is definitely helpful. I did have an episode with millennial caregivers and one of the stories she told me was she, her grandmother, I think, wanted to go to bingo and she's like not a bingo person. So another contemporary of the caregiver, the young woman, she liked bingo. So she took her friend's grandmother to bingo and the friend took the other gal's grandmother. So they kind of swapped. And that was kind of a relief because they did fun things with the other person's grandmother right so those kind of things are an option you know look at other other people in your situation maybe you can team up so or I kind of like uh, you know I, I know of a I know of a program where parents of uh, children with autism um, a couple parents will take all the kids or a couple sets of parents will take all the kids while the rest of the parents get to go out to dinner once a month and then they trade off you know that kind of thing. And then they're actually getting to be, go out, do something fun for themselves, be social. Um, I would, you know, suggest that people ask their neighbor, would you mind sitting with my mom for an hour so I can go get my hair done? You know, it's that kind of thing, actually separating yourself from the person that you're caring for. It's often a real relief or, or, um, it's a different, a different person for them to talk to as well. A little, a little fresh air. You know what I mean? To yeah. just, not just the two people who are in each other's face all the time, but it gets you out of the house and it gives them somebody new uh, and different to talk to. We, uh, we train people using the REST model. It's respite education and support tools for any volunteer program. So a lot, there's a lot of, um, Volunteer programs accessible through the offices of aging or the offices of developmental disabilities where people are trained to go in and spend time with the person who has the condition so that the caregiver can get out. So like I said, if you have a specific condition that you're dealing with, contact whatever organizations are that do that and find out if they have volunteer programs that you could, that you could access. I mean, I there's mind. a lot matching programs out there where programs are trying to match interests um, with the person that they're providing care for. 
and that's helpful as well. So if you have somebody who's just a total, who's always a total baseball fanatic, if you can find a retired person in the community who would like to take them to a baseball game and that gives the caregiver a couple hours, it's a beautiful thing. You have to be a little creative about it. That's, that's important. I also did an episode. This gal is, she's got a 5013C startup she's doing where it's, where they take a small group of um, early stage dementia, people living with dementia to various places. Baseball game might be one yeah. of them. She's up in the Sacramento, California area. And I'm not that far from her. We have a couple towns over a beautiful, I think it's a semi-professional baseball stadium. You would never know it's there and it's tiny. It's even a little bit smaller if you've ever been to spring training in Arizona, or I think your side of the country does spring training in Florida. I'm not sure. Um, but it's, you get the ballpark feel without the big stadium park right. stresses right. that could add to people. So I suggested that to her, but her program is planned. She's working on, plans to take people to like animal shelters to walk the dogs bathe the dogs do you know do little right. volunteer things so that they feel useful in their community still which is important a beautiful thing yeah, yeah i'm excited that she's close enough to me that now that spring is here at least in california although it's pouring today the um I can go with her on one of these trips and kind of follow up on her plan. And one of the things that she's working on is specific outings for men because some of the adult day programs where they do coloring and bingo and crafty stuff is not what guys want to do. So it's right. know, like you said, you know, take somebody out, you know, even I'm not a golfer, but I'm thinking if you went and did the driving range just for right. a while with somebody would be good. So we need, we need like, what is it that, um, that website for the meal planning for, I can't remember what it's called now, but they almost need something like that where you can sign up to, you know, take Charlie out golfing or. Well, that's really the basis of the share the care model. So, you know, take a look at it. I will it's, definitely do that because yeah. that that's sounds excellent. I know when my, Dad was still alive. My mom, both my dad was a Rotarian and my mom was a Seroptimist. And even as her memory got very bad, two of her friends, different weeks would take her to the lunch and the meeting. And one friend would actually take her out. You know, they, after the meeting, this woman would do errands and she'd just drag my mom along, which I don't think my dad appreciated the sacrifice that really is. Um, and just even those little things were a benefit because then he had the entire afternoon off. Exactly. He just got frustrated because this one gal was never great at letting him know what time they'd be back. So he always kind of felt on the hook. Uh, it could be as early as 2. It could be as late as 4.30. And I had suggested at one point, well, tell her that you won't be home until 4 unless she lets you know she's not right. going to Costco today. So... You know, it's definitely something you got to kind of work with the person that's trying to work with you. Yep. Yep. So the share the care, is that a .com or a .org? Uh, .org. Okay. 
it's it was started by Sheila Warnock. So I'll just uh, she's going to be at the conference that we're hosting. So um, might be a good segue. She's presenting on the model at the conference. Um, it's uh, it's the actually the Arch National Respite Conference, the website that I'd given you earlier. Um, and we as the coalition are hosting it for them this year in Buffalo, New York on May 1st and 2nd. We have um, we have we're doing something that's really unusual and it's called a caregiver simulation and it's really um a way for we we market it to professionals because it's a way to really raise empathy and help them understand what caregivers are really going through and to kind of challenge their assumptions about what caregivers go through um, and so we are really excited about that and, um, and working hard to bring that to. We have about 325 people signed up for the conference. So that is going to be a big undertaking. Yeah, that's, so that'll be fun. How, really, does, how does the caregiving simulation work? Because I saw that online. I wrote it down to ask you about that because it sounds very interesting. Um, it's, a, it's a role play exercise. It takes about two hours. And all around the room are agencies... Uh, uh, places that caregivers would have to go. They have to pay bills. They have to get medication. They have to go to the doctor. They have to get exercise. They have to do all those things. So they have a task card in the simulation. And there's different um, scenarios. So you might have 50 people, maybe 100, what we're shooting for right now, in each simulation area. And they have the role play of either a caregiver or a care receiver. And they have to do all those tasks while they're also having to deal with, uh, we use earplugs for hearing loss. We use goggles for low vision. They, we have wheelchairs, walkers, canes. It's, it's quite chaotic, the whole thing. <laughs> um, but it, people just really love um, the whole experience and, and come out of it with really positive things to say. And most of it is, wow, I never really got it until now, what caregivers, the challenges they face. And a lot of the challenges that they face in the simulation are what the, you know, the, the barriers that agencies themselves put up. And that's what we really want um, the agencies and the professionals to really get. So that will, that will be a big part of the conference. We have Andy Goodman coming from California. Are you familiar with Andy Goodman? I don't think so. The Goodman Center, and he uh, he talks about storytelling as a best practice, helping uh, nonprofit agencies to really be able to market themselves with very impassioned and personal stories. So he's great. Um, we have we just have lots of great speakers and lots of breakout sessions. There'll be tons of learning and and uh, and we're just really looking forward to throwing the best conference yet. Well, that sounds terrific. And the caregiver simulation might be a way of running an actual caregiver through all of those things as a way of crystallizing their awareness that, yeah, you really are a caregiver, even if it is your adult special needs child or your spouse or your parent. Um, yeah. There's one, there's a dementia simulation that I keep threatening to do that they've done I missed it in my support group. I hadn't joined when they did it. And I've heard it's extremely intense. Yeah. Um, which is slightly my hesitation, but it's a good way of getting them to understand or getting us to understand what it's like to live in like my mom's shoes. Yep. She Absolutely. and I went out 
Monday was a gorgeous day. It was about 75, 77 degrees. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) I get that a lot. It's raining and wet today. It's not. Gosh. I'm done with the rain. We're out of our drought. We've had like 150% of our normal rainfall. I'm over it. Done with the rain. That's a typical California wine. It's like we get to yeah, a certain well, it's, point. It's sunny and 50, but we're expecting three to five inches by Friday. So. Of snow? Yeah, that would be snow. Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, we went out because it's the first nice Monday that I could take her out. I took her out to a regional park that I talk about a lot on various episodes. It's super close to her residence. And... In the last year, I've, I've seen an increase in the shadows confuse her. She tries not to step on them. You yeah. can, the ground may be almost relatively flat, and she's kind of feeling along with her feet because the shadows, however it's getting processed in her brain, she's not perceiving the path as relatively flat. And on Monday, this is kind of new. She basically walked bent over looking at her feet. And I kept, and she said, I I don't want to fall. And I tried to impress upon her, which I know is kind of a long shot, that wherever you're looking is where you're going to end up. So if you're looking at the ground, might fall. So bring your chin up. And she'd do that for a few seconds, but obviously her visual spatial processing is completely out of whack and it was it was interesting because at the very we didn't walk very far because she walks very slowly because she's confused but at the end we were coming down just enough of a grade that she kept gaining speed and I'm visualizing you know like when toddlers run and their feet get ahead of them and they go they go spinning around well I obviously (laughs) did not want my mom to do that so I kept physically slowing her down which kind of irritated her but I figured a few seconds of her being irritated with me was a lot better than her crashing onto the dirt but she got a little dizzy and I don't know if maybe she was if that was the lack of processing the visual relationship between her and the at the you know where we were at where she was a little dehydrated it was interesting we didn't have that problem a year ago so Definitely a decline there. Well, and that simulation would help you to really understand very clearly what it is she's going through. And what that does is give caregivers uh, the empathy and a, and a little more patience yeah. when they're, when they're dealing with that behavior. I know? had a great episode with the gal that's living with dementia. And the stuff that she described, I mean, my mom has been on this path for close to 20 years. So I kind of felt like I'd seen a lot of it not all of it obviously but after I talked to her that greatly increased my understanding of what it was like not only does she have visual hallucinations she has um scent hallucinations which Mm -hmm. is very strange Mm -hmm. because it smells like burning wires and I didn't ask her if she thought maybe it was the burning wires in her head no 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 (laughs) (laughs) she she was she's very funny She's approaching her diagnosis with a bang. She's very big on advocating and educating. She posts all the time, whether she's having a good day or a bad day. I mean, more people need to be like her. I, and unfortunately, that's not easy. 
but I learned a lot just from talking to her. So I, I definitely should contact the gal that does the, the dementia simulation just to, just to really cement how my mom lives. Yeah. Yes. It would be good. Definitely. I'll have to make that a, a video podcast. Unlike these yeah. I can post, but most of my podcasts are not video yet. <laughs> okay. So do you have any, I know you're super busy planning this conference. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Do you have any, like a last tidbit, last uh, gem of a tip that you can pass along? <laughs> or if not, uh, you're laughing, maybe you have more than one. <laughs> you know, all I can say to caregivers is, please just take care of yourselves because you can't take care of somebody else to your full capacity if you're not taking care of yourself. If you're not, you know, rested and centered and do whatever you have to do to get that done. I agree. I find if I am tired or stressed or my mind is preoccupied with the 50 other things I should be doing when I'm sitting there answering my mom's question, the same question every two minutes, it, it makes the visits less pleasant, which they're never that pleasant because of where she's at in the later stages. But if I'm stressed, she picks up on it and it just spirals. Yeah. And that's just a short afternoon visit. So it's definitely, it's definitely important you know, if you're, especially if you're a sandwich generation, like my sister, um, and my sister has a, my nephew is on the autism spectrum. So it's equally blessed for her that mom is able to afford a memory residence because she doesn't need a 13 year old and an almost 10 year old on the autism spectrum and mom and work (laughs) and her in-laws live with her. They're, Oh Lord. They're independent. They're just poor. She really needs to take care of herself. And she does. She takes, she, you know, she visits mom almost every week. She takes my niece, which kind of helps. It's a third person to interact with, you know, so she just does the best she can. There's no way she could have mom live with her. And my husband and I are self-employed as most of my listeners know. So there's no way she could live here without substantial assistance from a, Yeah, you know, a support person in in our house. So, and so the other thing I would tell people is to put the guilt away. You're doing the best you can. That is true. You know, it's just not it's just not productive. That is very true. Mm -hmm. Well, is any of the breakout sessions that you guys are planning, or will any of those be available online after the convention for those of us who can't make it this year? All the. all the keynotes will be online. That would be um, great. And, as, and in addition, we're having someone um, videotape and make a caregiver simulation video for us. So that will be available as well. We hope to use it to, to market the whole experience across the state. Now, that'll be awesome. So yeah. I'll definitely check back with you. Maybe towards the middle of May, once you've had enough time to recuperate. When I recover, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I've been to some international conventions through our through Rotary, and I don't know how those people, there's some of them, they work the whole thing. And well, I, I plan on that. There's a lot of moving parts, yeah. a lot of moving parts, but... Someday maybe I'll join that group, but I don't know. It'll be worth it. I got a, I got a ways to go with 
I mean, like I said, mom's only 76. So her neurologist said, unless she gets broken hip or pneumonia or the flu or something along those lines, she could easily live another 10 years. Yep. So I'll be up there in the 30, 30 year journey of Alzheimer's, which I haven't, I've only heard of one other person that's been on this journey that long. I hope I don't make it that far, but <laughs> I hope, I hope she doesn't make it that far. I'm going to be around for a while. <laughs> well, good luck with the convention. I will definitely check back in with you. And I really appreciate you taking the time this afternoon amongst all this busy planning to, to tell the listeners about respite care and how to get it and why they should do it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Now that you've got great information on how to get respite care, there's still those times when you need somebody to talk to. And as much as I'd like this podcast to answer all of your questions and concerns, I'm not the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week helpline that is available through the Alzheimer's Association. Their phone number is one 800 272 3900. If you need somebody to talk to this minute, they're the ones to call. Thanks for tuning in to Fading Memories, and as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, please take a moment and give us a positive rating and review. Ratings and reviews are how new listeners find us, and I can't be a supportive podcast if people don't know I exist.